Hi there. We're in a uh, short series through January called Devoted. And what we're doing is looking at the things that the early church were devoted to from the very beginning of the church. So from the day of Pentecost onwards, that's the start of the church. What were the church devoted to as ways of expressing their devotion to God and growing in their Christian life together? And we're going to be in Acts chapter 4 today. Last week, we were in Acts chapter 2. And we spent a lot of time looking at verse 42 in particular of Acts chapter 2, which said, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And what we did is last week we started by looking at devotion to the apostles' teaching. Then this week we're going to do that funny word fellowship, which I'm going to suggest a couple of alternative translations for as well to help us understand what it means. But fellowship. Then next week we'll do breaking bread. And then in the midweek gatherings on Wednesdays, we're being devoted to prayer as well as a church. So that's where we're going. That was last week in Acts 2, and this week we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. But before we turn there, I just want to start, particularly for those of us who are not Christians or very new to Christianity, just to introduce a bit what I think Luke is going to talk about when he talks about this word fellowship or life in common. I want to introduce that by looking at a couple of excerpts or clippings from newspapers over the last couple of years. One of them is from the Daily Telegraph in Britain, and one of them is from the New York Times in America. And they're both very helpful little, they're not meaning to be, but they're quite helpful little windows into what Luke means when he talks about life in common, or togetherness, or commonness, or uh, participation, or fellowship. So I hope these will help. The first one's from the Daily Telegraph uh, on the 7th of December 2014. I wrote this. They teach that people should love their neighbor, but a major new study shows that churches are one of the few places in modern Britain, uh, sorry, few places most modern Britons might even meet them. Groundbreaking new analysis of the friendship networks of almost 4,300 people aged 13 to 80 has identified churches and sporting events as the last bastions of neighborliness and integration in Britain. Overall, it found that churches and other places of worship are more successful than any other social setting at bringing together people of different backgrounds, well ahead of gatherings such as parties, meetings, weddings, or venues such as pubs and clubs. Which I think is really interesting, that churches are the most diverse places in the country. And sporting events come second, and then everything else is way down. I find that really fascinating. Bear in mind that that's not just talking about a church like this here in South London. You'd expect a church to be diverse because the community is very diverse. But it's saying that the church as a whole, wherever they are, there's some churches in many of them, in villages where almost everybody is old and white. And yet the church is still, relative to its community, more diverse than any other institution. And I think that's wonderful. That's a little window into what Luke means by they were all together and had a life in common. And then a second quote, which is from the New York Times, and this one's from the tw- on the 28th of March, 2015. Uh, and this one's a very different angle on it, but it also gives another angle on what life in common meant in the early church and still means today. This is Nick Kristof writing. He's a liberal guy. He's not a Christian, but he's writing about Christianity and particularly caring for poor people. And he writes this. In liberal circles, evangelicals constitute one of the few groups that it's safe to mock openly. But I've been truly awed by those I've seen in so many remote places combating illiteracy and warlords, famine and disease, humbly struggling to do the Lord's work as they see it. And it's offensive to see good people derided. 
I must say that a disproportionate share of the aid workers I've met in the wildest places over the years, long after anyone sensible had evacuated, have been evangelicals, nuns, and priests. Or, or priests. Likewise, religious Americans donate more of their incomes to charity and volunteer more hours than the non-religious, according to polls. In the United States and abroad, the safety net of soup kitchens, food pantries, and women's shelters depends heavily on religious donations and volunteers. It's not a Christian guy just saying that's the reality of the way the church functions. And I think those two quotes are very helpful in grounding in modern life what Luke is about to tell us about the ancient world. They show us what Luke means by this interesting word, fellowship or life in common. And they also show that the vision of the early church in all its unity and generosity is alive and well today. So let's read Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. I just want to pause for a moment on that word, in common. And just a, mo- a tiny bit of Greek, sorry to do this, but the word in common, koinos, is the normal Greek word for ordinary or common. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because the word fellowship, when it said they devoted themselves to fellowship, that's the word koinonia. So koinos, koinonia. We translate it in common, and then we translate this word fellowship, but we could translate it almost commonness. They devoted themselves to being in common, or life in common. I don't mean commonness as in, oh, core blimey, governor, throw me. I don't mean that kind of commonness. I mean commonness in the sense of they had things in common. They had life together. Uh, you could translate it participation, or togetherness, or even commonwealth, if you wanted to be a bit risky, and not in the political sense, but you know, just locally, they tr- devoted themselves to being koinos. They devoted themselves to being in common with one another, to fellowship. And I mean, you could use, of course, the English word community, which also comes from our word common, doesn't it? Common community. Um, but I think the English word community has just become a bit bland, at least to my ears, through overuse. People are always saying, well, we need to on the radio, you know, people, we need to get people out of hospital beds into the community. Well, they don't mean a place where people have life in common. They just mean out of the hospital into the ether, into the sort of public space. It's, not a, it's, a, it's a word that lacks teeth in our society. You know, people even talk about an online community. And the whole point of being online is that you're not in community because nobody else is there. So I think if you're prepared to use the word community with teeth, great. But that's why I would go for a slightly stronger word, like perhaps life in common uh, or togetherness. And, of course, the word we've got in our translations is fellowship. So I hope that's just helpful setting up what we mean by koinonia, this idea of fellowship or life in common. Verse 33, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet." So in Acts 2.42, this last week again, we read Luke identifies the Jerusalem church as a group of people devoted to four things, apostles' teaching and fellowship, or life in common, or participation, or commonness together. 
And here in Acts 4, and particularly in verse 32, he then describes what that devoted to commonness looks like in practice. And he does it in three statements. He says in verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And then the rest of the passage goes on, as we've just read, and talks about how they sold their possessions, put it at the apostles' feet, and distributed it to the poor. The full number of those who were together was one of heart and soul. No one said anything was his own that belonged to him, and they had everything in common. So here's what often happens with this passage, at least in my experience. Some people on reading that say, there it is, you see, the early church was basically a commune. It was like an early communist society. Private property is unbiblical. Nobody should own anything, not even their their shirt or their food. We abandon possessions altogether and live just like it says in that passage. No one should own anything. All possessions should be pooled in the church. Yay, communism! Now, I'm sounding a little bit like I'm mocking that a bit. I just think sometimes at an extreme, it's not helpful. But actually, my first experience of church was in a place very like that. Uh, it was in, we were in, lived in mid-Sussex in a community at the time called Bethany Fellowship, and it was kind of like that. You know, I grew up with people who were always living in my house who we were not part of our family. Um, people would turn up at the door with a chicken, and then my mum would sort of say, oh, actually, we've, our kids have grown out of these shoes. Your kids can have those, but they'd turn up with something for us to eat. And that was my first experience of the Christian life through my parents. So it's not something I despise at all, but I think to say that that's what the Christian life must be always is a misreading of this passage. But that's one of the things that people do with it. They say, there you go, we've got to be communists. And then other people do the exact opposite. They overreact and they say, well, no, 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 that's not true. Rubbish. This is a one-off. The church in Acts is a total one-off. It's not what we're normally supposed to do. The New Testament is full of people who own houses and land and possessions. Acts 4 doesn't tell us what the church should be like today. So, yay, capitalism. In other words, we can say, oh, it's not about that. Instead, it doesn't really say anything to the way we live now. So let's carry on in the capitalist society we are and pretty much ignore what Acts chapter 4 sounds like it means for the church today. And both of those reactions have got something right and something wrong. Because the Jerusalem church that we're reading about in the history of the church is a bit of an anomaly in that it's a specific period where a lot of people have moved to Jerusalem. They don't even live in Jerusalem. They've come from all over the world for Pentecost, become believers, and decided to stay in the church rather than go back to their homelands. So they don't have any stuff. So the people who do have stuff are selling it to give to them. That's not usually the situation the church has been in. A lot of the church in history has found they do have property or possessions, and therefore it hasn't been needed. So it is a bit of an anomaly. But, at the same time, it represents a vision that, as we've seen already through those quotes from the papers, has never died. That's always been part of the vision of the church, to be a place where people actually have life in common. So if we say, oh, no, 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 that was a bit of a blip so we can ignore it, that's really unhelpful because there is a lot in this text that should challenge us and shape us, particularly as we live in a Western society where people have a lot of possessions and where still a lot of people in the world around us are very poor and where a lot of people in our society don't live in community with other people at all. There's actually quite a lot of loneliness and certainly a lot of individualism in modern Britain and certainly in London. So it's a good, good thing to be challenged by this text without saying, therefore, it must be the exact same way we apply those principles today. And what both of the reactions do... The, if you like the communist one and the capitalist one, 
is they both put all the emphasis on the third of those three statements we looked at, they had everything in common, as opposed to the first two, which said all the believers were of one heart and soul, and no one said anything was their own. And the risk is that if we do that, we create a bit of an all or nothing here. Either we abandon private property altogether, or we ignore the implications of this text for the church today. And I think the way of wisdom is to do neither of those, but to walk down the middle, which is to hold fiercely to the vision cast in the first two statements, devoted to life in common. No, they were one of heart and soul, and no one thought that anything was their own. But admitting at the same time that the practical outworking of that might well be different in our context than it was in theirs. So it might not necessarily mean no one has private possessions. But it means that everybody who does is of one heart and soul with everyone else and also committed to thinking, this is not really just mine. This is for us together as God's people. Now, the full number of those who were believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to them was their own. Well, let's take the first statement first and just look a little bit about what that might look like uh, today. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. I, I think the most powerful place I learned this, uh, was confronted with it, was in a visit I took about 10 years ago to northern Nigeria. And I've said a lot of people in the church from Nigeria, many people have not even, even in, who are Nigerian have not actually been much to the north, far north, where it's all Islamic and everything's under Sharia law and it's a, it's a very different sort of feel to southern Nigeria. And I was on a, a visit up there and when I was visiting the Christians there, many of whom are they were being persecuted, really. Their churches are being burned down. There, there's some, I won't share some horror stories of things that have happened to church leaders there. Really awful stuff. And we were there to sort of document and look at what was happening. And uh, my experience of Christianity and the experience of Christianity of these people was what hugely different, right? There was, in principle, I shouldn't have had very much in common with them, right? They were all, almost all Anglicans. Uh, their approach to scripture is different from mine. Their approach to hierarchy, actually. They had, I'm, I'm Western, so I think in quite an egalitarian way. I think quite flat. I don't have lots of layers in, in the church. We don't really do that in the way we think about society. We don't really do that. There's a much more hierarchical approach to society that they had, which I wasn't used to. Their attitude to Muslims and Islam was different understandably, because of where they live and what they face on a daily basis. So there's a lot of differences, and I found it quite difficult, actually, to sort of adapt to thinking, oh, wow, you just in many ways, as often we do when we meet people from other cultures. But our shared commitment to Jesus meant that even though we did things differently in lots of different ways and didn't quite get each other and misunderstood each other and had little confusions between us, Our shared commitment to Jesus made us of one heart and soul, even though there were all of those differences. So we were really receiving blessing from them. You're seeing people in the face of real persecution thinking, wow, I have got so much to learn from you. You are giving to me, my brothers and sisters. We are different. We practice Christianity differently. But there is something powerful in your experience of Jesus that I want to learn from and gain from. And we did. And actually, we found that while we were there, that we were giving to them. I had this bizarre experience. They said, they sort of passed out these songbooks. And they open up the songbooks. And on the inside cover, it says, this songbook was produced in Lotbridge Drove, Eastbourne, which is the road in the town that my office is on. I, lit- I work on Lotbridge Drove, Eastbourne. And I'm sitting there reading that that's where they would got their songbooks from. And I think, wow, in a, w- in a weird way here, we have served you with something because we have the resources and you have served us with a great deal as well. 
And there was this moment towards the end of that meeting where uh, they, they started up this song, which I'd never heard, but many of you probably have. Um, and they just began sort of moving around the circle like this. And they were going, we are heirs of the Father. And sort of going around, sort of hugging everybody as they went, which is not a very white English thing to do. So I was like, sort of a little bit caught up. And we are joined heirs, we are sons. We are children of the kingdom. We are family. We are one. And they just kept singing it, going round and round. And as I went, I just thought, this is so beautiful and so true that we have life in common because of Jesus, not because we do life in the same way. We don't. It's very different. But because of Jesus, we have become family, one, heirs together. And it was a beautiful picture for me that was being worked out in front of my very eyes. So what might that look like here? If that's what it looks like there, that's great to know. What does it look like here? Well, a couple of obvious things and then one not so obvious one. One of the things it looks like here is it physically, life in common, being of one heart and soul, means actually being together. I know that sounds obvious, but it does. It means being in the same room as people. It means being alongside them. It means standing next to them and singing or praying with them and going and getting coffee with them and talking to them and smiling with them and singing with them. You can't do those things from inside your sitting room. It means physically being in the same space. Obviously, there are some for whom that's impossible. I understand that. But for the vast majority of us, it will mean being in the same space as other Christians, singing and praying and sharing communion together. I saw this billboard a few months ago appear on the screen, and I saw this billboard. It just took him out church at home like this. I just was looking at the billboard, just going, no, 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 no. Church was never meant to be just sort of dialed down to the lowest level of commitment possible. It's always been intended to be a place of life in common, of being together, community with teeth. It means being together. It means getting to know people. That's more difficult in larger churches like ours. So we do that in groups. We do it a lot in groups. They are a superb context for doing life in common, for studying scripture together and eating together and debating and praying together and counseling one another if needed. I mean, my, my example here, I'm moving to a new church where I didn't know anybody. I found that the midweek context and the meals I've had in people's houses have been where almost all of the relationships I've formed have been made. They haven't mostly been formed on Sunday. I love the people I've met on Sundays. But that's actually not where most of the relationship building happens. Because too much going on, too many people. So that's a powerful way. And in our invited series, which is the next preaching series we're going to do, we're going to talk a lot more about that, about how life in common works in groups. But there is a less obvious point in here as well. Notice the scope of the statement, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. I notice the breadth of that. This isn't just a local church. It is a local church in Jerusalem, but actually it's also all of the believers in the world at that time, isn't it? Right? This is every Christian on earth happens to be in this one city, because that's the only place that's heard the gospel at this point. But that vision, all the believers were of one heart and soul, is not supposed to only apply to one congregation of the local church. It's actually intended to be applied to the global commitment of the, local ch- of the church all around the world. So that we are not only one with those who come to the same church and have the same pastor and listen to the, sing the same songs, but we are to be one in unity and oneness and community with the global church as well. 
And sometimes we might find that very easy. Sometimes it's inspiring to be part of a global church with people. I met some Iranian refugees in Turkey recently where I just thought, wow, the privilege of being brothers. They were most, almost all converts from Islam. Many of them had seen dramatic miracle stories. They'd been converted through dreams or healings or just astonishing stories. And as you're sitting over eating sort of a Turkish meal with these people, you just think, this is the best ever. I love being part of a global church with you. But there are times when it might be harder. I had another moment in the last 12 months where I was standing, this was in early November, and a copy of the newspaper in front of me in the hotel I was in was proclaiming that Donald Trump might win the election. And I was just staring at it, head in my hands, just shaking my head in disbelief. And this American brother comes past, very kind of Texan, and he looks at I was shaking my head, and I said, have you seen this? Thinking he would think, yeah, it's awful. And he literally went, Hallelujah! and Hillary will go to jail, and then walked off. I was like, wow, at times like this, it is hard sometimes to feel like, yeah, we are one, because I think, wow, we are so different. And yet, in both that situation, and with the Iranian brothers and sisters, and everywhere around the world, we are to be one, to speak well of, to pray for, to stand with one another as believers in Jesus. And sometimes we'll find it easy, and sometimes it'll be hard, but Luke tells us the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So that's part of what life in common looks like, of one heart and soul. The other part that we've seen begin to be expanded in this passage involves a radical attitude towards money and possessions. And that's in the second statement. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. So we're still in verse 32. They were of one heart and soul, and no one said anything that was theirs was actually their own. Here's what I think is significant about that. You can have that attitude even if you continue to own stuff. You could have the attitude that the things that you are looking after that belong to you are not really yours. You can think that way and live that way even if you continue to own stuff legally. So as I said before, we we can end up, if we're not careful, in an all or nothing here. Either we live in a commune or we ignore the application of this text altogether. But it's possible to live as if nothing is yours, even while it remains yours. So I had this experience last week, right? My boiler broke. We we had that kind of Christmas where uh, four of the five of us in our family were sick, and then the boiler broke and the immersion heater broke at the same time. And that's very annoying, because the immersion heater's only function is to keep the water hot when the boiler breaks. As soon as the boiler breaks, the immersion heater goes, well, I'm packing up for the day as well. I'm going to have a Christmas holiday too. So we've got these two things that don't work, and we didn't even ask for it. But Rachel just put on Facebook, oh, just boiler break, oh, so frustrating. Anybody know a plumber that we could ask? And we had literally not even asked for it. And it was like the bat sign going up in the sky and people just coming from all over. People just turned up from our church with heaters and radiators that we hadn't even asked them for. They just knocked on the door. Here they are. We heard you didn't have your boiler packed up. Here's this. Another person came around and said, I've got these two proper like industrial heaters because I'm a builder and I use them on sites when there's no heating at all. You use them for the next few days. We had somebody say, come over and use our shower. It just, out of nowhere, this happens. And at that point, you think, well, you think two things. One, Lord, thank you for putting me in a church. And I also thought, how do people do things like this in life when they don't have a church? It was just such a moment of, if you like, people not acting as if what was theirs was actually theirs, but instead thinking, this is ours. This is for us. 
Now, that's just kind of an obvious, easy application, but that's also the spirit behind Big Red Box in this church. It's where people are saying, Do you know, actually, this, kind of, this could be mine. I could think of this as mine, but I'm not going to treat it as if it is. I'm going to live as if this is not mine and give it to somebody else. 1,760 boxes of food distributed in this community over the course of the last month because people live that way. And that's actually the same idea, isn't it? I, this is mine, but I'm going to live as if it's not because I want to bless somebody else with it. The biblical word for that, living with something that is yours, but living as if you are looking after it on behalf of someone else, the biblical word for that is stewardship. I am, this is mine, but it's mine in trust, and I'm looking after it for someone else. And we've got a stewardship evening just this, this week, just on Tuesday. And I'm going to go, by the way. I've, I've, not, I've not been to one before. I want to go along. I want to hear about it. I want to receive this teaching too because I think it's going to be helpful for me personally. So I'm going to go. And I just encourage you, if you can make it and you would benefit from that teaching, it will help. It's on Tuesday evening at the Catford site. But the application of all of this, of course, might be very different to the application in Jerusalem. In their case, that attitude, oh, no, this isn't mine, this is for us, meant that they literally sold their possessions and their houses and lived together. In our context, that might not be the application. You might not literally do that, sell your house, although you might. But you might not literally do that. But the point is, the heart behind it is still one of saying, this isn't mine. It's, it's God's, and therefore it's for us as his people. Having said that, if you live that way, you will sometimes find that you do end up selling your stuff and giving it away. I just had this fantastic story recently of um, a guy I know as a pastor in Southampton, and he... Uh, he, he was sort of asking people to give towards a building project for the church. And, and there was this guy came up at the end of the message and said, well, I'd love to give, but I just don't have anything to give. I really, I, I have very, very little. Would you pray for me? So the pastor prays for him and said, I pray that you'd bless this guy, that you'd provide money for him supernaturally that he's able to give. Now, this guy's a metal detector. He's one of those guys who walks around with one of those machines that goes beep, 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 and you find metal in fields and stuff. So he's got one of those. So he's driving in his car, and uh, he sees, if you like, a shaft of light come through the clouds onto a field. And he concludes, God is leading me to this field. So there he goes, and he goes off to the field where he's seen the shaft of light and goes beep, 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 beep. And sure enough, digs into the ground and finds an Anglo-Saxon ring that he's able to sell for thousands of pounds and put in the offering. Now, my friend at that point should have just got, I, what most of us would have done is go, that's amazing, praise God, and moved on. But he didn't. He went, right, this is a bit of a, great, this is funding the building project. So he prayed for him again. And this is where some of you will check out and think this sounds silly. But he, he literally, he's driving in his, happens again, he's driving in his car and he sees a rainbow. So where are you going to look for the money? Of course, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. So he goes to where the rainbow looks like it's ended. This is a true, I'm not, this is not a preacher story, this is true. And he goes to the end of the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, if you like. And again, beep, 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 beep. And he goes in and finds not a ring, but a Viking bracelet. And when taken together, the Viking bracelet and the Anglo-Saxon ring sell for 50,000 pounds, which is able to give to the church. Now, some of you are going to start metal detecting now. I, I doubt there's that many of them. I doubt it's going to work for us all. But I, just, I was struck by that, partly because I was thinking, yes, sometimes the attitude that I am to live as if nothing is mine is actually going to produce fruit. That means I do literally sell my stuff and put it in the offering. I literally do what these guys did. I sell it and I give it. Because he gave it all, this guy. He didn't keep it for himself. 
And I find at that point there is a profound challenge, isn't there, for us to say, you know, I want to live, even when I get these great blessings, as if this is not mine. I may not have to give it all. I may not have to give a majority of it. I may give 10%. I may give more. I may, may give less. But what I want to do is to have a heart that is aware that this is not mine and actually belongs to someone else. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. So Luke says, The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said anything that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. The early church were devoted to life in common, to togetherness. And they expressed that through generosity, as we've just seen, and through unity, through being of one heart and soul. And the will to do that And the power to do that comes ultimately not from an effort to do-gooding, but from the knowledge that Jesus has already devoted himself to life in common with us. That's where it comes from. It doesn't come from people going, "Hmm, I'm going to try, that sounds lovely, a bit of community, let's go and sell our Viking bracelets. That's not where the power comes from. The power comes from the knowledge that Jesus has been so committed to being one of heart and soul with us that he's become just like us. He's shared life in common with us. He has said that nothing that is his is his own. He's come and become so like us and shared everything he had in order to total solidarity with us. He gave up everything he had. He shared all of our frailty and our sin and our disgrace. And he shared absolutely all of his honor and power and righteousness. He did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it's because he was devoted to life in common with us that we are able to be devoted to life in common with one another. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus, who, though he was in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or seized, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave. We thank you that his example of treating nothing as if it was his own and of becoming like us in total solidarity with us is the grounds we have for living that way ourselves. And I pray that you would help us as a community here at King's to live like that individually, as families, and as a church as a whole in the global church. We pray that we would be those who live life in common with others and are devoted to fellowship. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.